dream is dawning, held in the holy waters. A global community of empathy and intelligence. We walk with one vision. Enter the temple. conversation, we speak with Cam Fraser. Cam is a professional sex coach, sexologist, registered counsellor and tantric yoga teacher. His work is both deeply holistic, experiential and scientifically validated, integrating medically accurate information about sexual health with sacred sexuality teachings from the mystery traditions. As a coach, he helps men go beyond surface level sex and into a fully bodied, self-expressed, pleasure-orientated sexual experience, free of anxiety or shame. In this podcast, we traverse the heated landscapes of sexuality, cultural narratives, and the role of intimacy within the bedroom. May this podcast act as an invitation into the deepening of your own journey as a fully embodied and free sexual being. So welcome to the temple. We're talking with Cam Fraser here today and we're super excited because Cam has been living with us for the past two months during this crazy time and he's been creating such a cauldron of wisdom of sexual knowledge and masculine insight into our feminine world that we just feel so honored to have him here today. So I want to say welcome Cam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. And I'm going to kick this conversation off with a, a statement that he had recently said that really lit me up and made me think about a lot of things differently. Vulnerability is a state of sensitivity which can bring more pleasure. Which What I took from this statement during one of his recent sexual wisdom knowledge sessions on his Instagram was that we need to resensitize ourselves and heal our nervous systems as a central part of the process of re-empowering everybody into having more positive and fulfilling, pleasurable, intimate and sexual experiences. So Cam, if you could just talk a little bit on how important you think vulnerability, intimacy and conversation is in the bedroom. Mm. Yeah, I think to define vulnerability firstly is like important. And I often use Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability, which is emotional exposure and risk taking. Mm. And so within the context of like a, a sexual encounter or a sexual experience, uh, particularly for, for men, cause that's the work that I do, but for people in general, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that emotions are always present in a sexual experience. You know, there's this kind of narrative and story particularly for people in male bodies that sex is just a physical act and that it's no, there's no emotional connection or, or there's no, nothing deeper to it. It's just purely a release. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do is helping men acknowledge that emotions are present in their sexual encounters, not only with other people, but also with themselves and just noticing what bubbles up. And so, and so when you then start to tap into your sexuality and, and the expression of your sexuality, 
by virtue of it being connected to your emotions, you're also expressing and exposing your emotions. Um, and then the, the second half of that vulnerability definition is, is taking risks. And particularly when we're engaging sexually with another person, there's a lot of risk involved with regards to exposing our emotions. Because um, we can think of like the things, that we, the things that we want, the things that we desire, the things that turn us on, and voicing those to someone can be pretty fucking risky, mm-hmm. especially if we're worried that we might be rejected or if we're worried that we might be thought that we're going to be judged or that we're going to be called weird or that we're going to be shut down or whatever it might be. So, so, um, so starting to frame a um, vulnerability that way in the context of a sexual relationship does, as the, as the quote that you read out suggests, um, increases sensitivity. And not only sensitivity to kind of what's happening in your own body, but sensitivity to what's happening in your partner's body as well. And so I've often got in trouble for saying this, but the more pleasure that you experience and the more pleasure that you focus on in your own body, the more pleasure your partner's going to experience as well. So the more attuned you are to, be, to your own sensitivity, just by virtue and by proxy of doing that, you're going to be more attuned to what your partner feels. And mm-hmm. if you're inviting that out of your partner as well, then you have this communication as you're kind of referring to you have this um i guess you facilitate a space where communication and openness is encouraged mm. so um i often when i talk to men i often frame it as like um taking leadership in a sexual setting and and not leading by by delegating and being dominant and being assertive which is definitely one form of leadership but leading by being vulnerable and leading by by being open and almost leading by example so inviting um their partners whether that's a you know whichever gender their partner might be but inviting them into that safe space into that vulnerable space where they can also share and they can also show up emotionally and they can take risks to to share what they desire and what turns them on as well Mm. and so you get this beautiful synergistic relationship between however many people are involved in that sexual encounter all kind of sharing what it is that turns them on all expressing their desires all um asking for what they want right that's that safe container safe space has been created for everyone involved to kind of ask for that and then communication can then progress into like well yes i can do that i I, or i can assert my boundary and say no i'm not comfortable doing that or like yeah i'm fully a yes on board with doing that to you or having that done to me and so we we kind of create this environment sexual environment where everyone's getting their needs met and when we get our needs met we experience pleasure right that's the whole idea at least in my humble opinion sex is supposed to be pleasurable and one of the ways we can facilitate that pleasure is by asking for what we want and mm-hmm. setting up boundaries with another person um, and setting up those limitations so it's like a bit of a process you don't just like jump straight into it and it's definitely a learning experience i'm still learning with adwina we still you know have little games and conversations with each other but um, but I think it starts with, with just starting to be a bit more vulnerable in the bedroom. Mm. I think it's really interesting how, as you mentioned, you get a lot of backlash or there's still some t- taboo around focusing on the self-pleasure and focusing on the self as an essential part of the process of creating a pleasurable experience for the other because I think that translates so perfectly into the world and how we need to focus on our self-work and our self-knowledge and discover who we are so that we can have healthy healthy relationships and good sexual experiences so I love that your work really is these when people come to you and make that decision that they need to to learn more about themselves and heal their own sexual traumas and rewrite their own narratives around what is pleasurable 
it's all it's all in the container of the self and then from that space they can then bring it out into their lives in a better way mm. so i wanted you to talk a little bit about um the myth of masculinity and the cultural narratives that you find in your work that come up about men sure sure well speaking into pretty much what you've just said particularly around pleasure for men there's a strong societal cultural narrative that um that men are responsible for their partner's pleasure and and whether that's explicitly stated or, or spoken about or whether it's just an unconscious kind of narrative that they adhere to and their partner adhere to in my work with with guys a lot of men feel like they're the ones that are responsible for giving their partner orgasms or giving their partner pleasure and this is where you know I've gotten in trouble for saying you know we should be focusing on our own pleasure rather than our partner's pleasure um, but that needs I suppose a little bit more explanation or a little bit more depth to it because the idea is if we start focusing on on our own if we take I guess if we take responsibility right for our own pleasure and our partner is then taking respons- responsibility for their own pleasure and we're both knowing what it is that turns us on we know we're both knowing what it is that gives us pleasure then we're able to communicate with one another so that we can facilitate each other's pl- pleasure we don't like I I can't give my partner an orgasm like I give her a, a coffee in the morning right it doesn't work like that right pleasure and orgasm is your own for your own experience you can you can help facilitate your partner's orgasm and help facilitate your partner's pleasure by asking them what it is they want and and doing to them and with them what it is they find pleasurable so that the the, the space is created for them to open up and to have those expanded pleasurable states um, but there's this like undercutting narrative that like men are the the doers and the active participants in like the sexual experience and you know I'll use a heteronormative example and women are the the passive receivers of the sexual act that's you know kind of based on this old school almost like sexist paradigm of what like men and women do in the bedroom it's like guys are the ones doing and women are the ones receiving um and so it takes you know it takes responsibility off the the woman in that scenario for her to ask for what she wants and for her to explore her own pleasure and to to um to give him direction because he as a guy is you know quote unquote supposed to know what he's doing right? and be knowledgeable and be dominant and be assertive in the bedroom but no one's getting education around that so no one's getting sex ed you know in terms of pleasure that's that's for sure so a lot of these men are going into the sexual experiences kind of not knowing what to do not familiar with female anatomy or their partner's bodies um definitely not familiar with their own pleasure um because that's not encouraged for them to explore and so people end up having shit sex right and 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 there's i mean we can talk into the the narrative around um particularly female body people kind of tolerating sexual activities and sexual experiences from their partners because it's um you know this myth that that guys are, are supposed to know what they're doing in the bedroom so so that's kind of like one narrative there with regards to pleasure but then there's like this other other narrative that like um that I kind of alluded to it before that that sex is just physical for guys and that they're just looking for gratification they're just looking for like that physical release and so we get this kind of scenario heterosexual scenario where like guys are focusing kind of more on their partner's pleasure than they are on their own um and i know that kind of seems counterintuitive considering like the orgasm gap and things like you know um 
a lot of women saying that they're not having great pleasurable experiences. But having worked with a lot of men, the the story that they're kind of telling themselves is like because they're the ones responsible for their partner's pleasure and they can only really experience like a five second gratification, you know, sticky white crotch sneeze, that's all they're kind of available to them. They pedestal their partner's pleasure and they then they then uh, I suppose like validate how much of a man they are by how much pleasure they can give to their partner so mm. and, and if you've ever been in a locker room you'll kind of know how the how the language is used and um, and kind of what's talked about it's never talked about like oh yeah I, I had this really beautiful pleasurable experience and you know guys never talk about like how much you know full body pleasure they experience and how beautiful the experience was for them it's always like yeah I made a come this many times and made her squeal and scream and all this kind of you know quite sexist misogynist language so we have guys thinking that they can only experience a little tiny amount of you know a flicker of pleasure um, in an orgasm or in an ejaculation more specifically and then defining or validating their own masculinity and what it means to be a man in in a sexual context by how much perceived pleasure they give to their partner because oftentimes their partners aren't experiencing a lot of pleasure hence the, the prevalence of women faking orgasms for example um, we have women not wanting to bruise men's egos or wanting the sex to be over quicker and and we know that you know when a woman's faking orgasms or expressing a lot of pleasure that'll usually make a guy finish quicker uh, and so the sexual experience or the sexual encounter kind of comes to a head a little bit faster uh, so the so the tolerating doesn't last as long um, and we have men going validating their own their own masculinity and sexuality together by how much perceived pleasure their partner's having so that's another myth that needs to be debunked is that guys can only have this five second little physical release it's like as soon as men start opening up and experiencing in their own bodies how much pleasure they can have they then go oh my god my partner can experience this as well and they start to not focus on ejaculation they start to focus on orgasm instead they start to focus not just on their genitals, but they start to focus on their whole body. And they become attuned to and aware of like how expanded their pleasurable experiences can be. And by virtue of doing that, they then start to notice that in their partner. They start to become aware of that in their partner. Um, particularly around like um, anal play and prostate stimulation. There's, and we've got, you know, this is data driven. There's evidence to kind of back this up. The, the, men that have experienced and explored any type of penetration play on themselves, either with a partner or by themselves in their own self-pleasuring, are more sensitive lovers. They're more aware of like how slow you need to be to penetrate. You know, they, they're aware of lube, for example, and, and wetness. Um, they like are aware of like how gentle you need to be as well. So there's like this um, direct correlation with like more pleasure and more exploration of your own body like directly correlating to being more aware of your partner's body as well. Um, and so like that kind of leads into another myth, which is like, or maybe it's not necessarily a myth, but it's definitely like a pretty strong narrative for, for the way men masturbate. So I talk to a lot of guys about the way that they, they touch themselves and the way that they experience pleasure by themselves. They get like one of three examples. It's like sitting at a computer with one hand on the mouse and one hand on their cock. Um, sitting on a couch or in bed with one hand on, on the phone swiping and another hand on their cock or it's like standing up in a shower behind closed doors and fantasizing and just kind of trying to rub one out so guys learn how to touch themselves learn how to pleasure themselves 
and they find often find like something that works for them. They'll find like a, a, a technique or they'll find like a stroke or they'll find like a speed that gets them off as quickly as possible because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the ejaculation. Often I'll ask guys, when was the last time that you masturbated and didn't ejaculate? And guys will look at me like, what, what the hell are you talking about? I, I, I masturbate so that I can ejaculate. And it's like, exactly. You, you, you're, you're being goal-oriented. Like you're heading towards this finish line um, and not enjoying the journey, so to speak. Um, so I, I, I'll share with them, you know, invite them, I suppose, to take ejaculation off the table to explore that whole process, to explore the whole journey of that building up of your arousal. Notice the nuances of it. Take your time. Explore the rest of your body because you can experience pleasure throughout your whole body. And it's like a, maybe a, a myth there that like, and I've seen like memes and stuff to kind of portray this, but like guys only experience pleasure in their cock. Like that's, you know, their genitals is like the only place they can experience pleasure. It's like a pretty strong, um, whether you could call it a myth or not, it's definitely like a pretty strongly held belief that guys only experience pleasure through their genitals. Um, and they reinforce that. Guys will reinforce that when they're by themselves and they only focus on their genitals and then they'll focus on whatever's in front of them. You know, if it's pornography or, or some type of visual stimulus, it's a very typical way for guys to masturbate. Um, and then... I mean, we can, I could talk all day if you want me to keep going. There's, there's like other, other myths around like um, masculinity that kind of derive from the way that guys are being sexual, which is like they need to you know, have an erection at the flick of a switch. They need to um, be penetrative and last, you know, last as long as they can. Um, they, need to, they need to ejaculate. That's like another kind of like standard, quote unquote, standard narrative of what you know, a man's sexual expression should look like. It's pretty linear. It's, you know, get aroused, get an erection, penetrate, ejaculate. Like it's pretty, you know, one after the other. And, and that's like also reinforced by like scientific literature as well. So, you know, the, the model of male sexual functioning, which, is, which was kind of released by Masters and Johnson in, in the 1960s, has that same pattern, that same linear process. And we still use that model in sex therapy today in 2020 where if a guy deviates from that, that standard model, then he's considered dysfunctional or abnormal or, or, um, yeah, or, or there's something wrong with him. Uh, and so you know, this model, which is, you know, like we said, arousal, erection, penetration, ejaculation, it's like if a guy's experiencing multiple orgasms without any ejaculation, according to that model and according to kind of sex therapy, he would be considered dysfunctional or, or have some type, of, some type of issue, some type of concern. So not only are we kind of like reinforcing it societally and culturally, but our academic and, and therapeutic models are also reinforcing this linear way of men expressing their sexuality and experiencing their sexuality. So um, so to kind of speak into what you were saying, my work is trying to rewrite that narrative for guys around what sex means for them um, and, and, and how they can express themselves sexually. So I kind of wholeheartedly believe that the more aware of your sexuality and your sexual self you are and, and the more um, the more in touch with your desires and what turns you on you are not only will that hold you in good stead in the sexual context but that'll influence the way that you show up just in life in general like I'm a big believer that sexuality is inextricably linked to, to who we are as individuals to who we are as beings you know where we are sexual beings some people may be more sexual than others but your sexuality informs the way influences the way you show up in the world so if you're if you're 
averse to that or, or cutting yourself off from your sexuality or not exploring your desires and not really aware of what it is that turns you on and, and what it is that you want and what it is that fulfills you sexually, then you're, you're not going to know what turns you on, fulfills you and, and what you desire outside of the sexual context as well. I think there's, there's a, a really big synergistic relationship between the two. Mm, yeah, I agree. I would like to go back to ejaculation and not only for men when they masturbate, but for couples in the bedroom and what that means for both a man and a woman's self-worth. I recently had an experience where the man told me during um, our sexual experience that he didn't, he wasn't, his intention wasn't to ejaculate and I actually got defensive and I was like, I know. And I realised in that moment that there's such a beautiful movement around women being empowered and tapping into their wild woman and having this fire and this ferocity and then ready to just get in the bedroom and have sex and have that fantasy of being held and just fucked. And then I was met with a vulnerable man ready to hold me and I was shocked into my vulnerability. And so I feel like there's an illusion that men are going to be a certain way in the bedroom and with your work I've noticed this beautiful opening of men ready to hold women in their vulnerability but women not ready to hold men in theirs and I think removing ejaculation from the bedroom is a beautiful starting point to what pleasure can be and what this new paradigm of sexuality in the bedroom can be. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that in your yeah. experience? Sure, sure. So I often refer to like the um, significance of ejaculation, right? So what, is it, what does ejaculation signify in a, in a couple's or you know, group sexual scenario? Let's use a couple for, for example. Ejaculation often is framed as like the end of a sexual experience. I'm sure plenty of people can relate to this. As soon as he's come, sex is over, right? The the whole Hollywood stereotype of just rolling over, having a cigarette and falling asleep after after he's come. But that's a pretty pretty um, common experience for a lot of people. Like there's there's a lot of truth in after ejaculation, sex is kind of over. You know? Um and so and so kind of what I was referring to before as well, because ejaculation is a signifier that the sex is finished if, for example, a woman is, is not enjoying the sexual experience, she'll oftentimes do things, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to make him come quicker so that the, the sex is, is over quicker, so that she doesn't have to put up with it for a longer period of time. And when we start to like take ejaculation off the table, as you kind of shared, is, is it can start to bring up stories for us. It can start to, start to challenge what ejaculation signifies for us. Because rarely do people kind of choose to experiment with ejaculation? It isn't until maybe a guy's drunk too much or um, he's got like a sexual, uh, whether it's a dysfunction or just like a concern um, where he could like can't ejaculate or, or um, the alcohol is like inhibiting his ejaculation that these stories kind of pop up, but that's not in a really healthy kind of context because um, there's no conversation having been having about it. So um, if we start to shake ejaculation off the table, things that pop up, some really common stories that pop up is like, um, I'll, I'll start with, with the women, um, is a story can pop up around, like, am I not good enough? Am I not hot enough? Am I not, am I not doing what he likes? Am I not, you know, am I not 
acting like the the porn star that he wants and and, and all these stories can come up around self-worth and and um because ejaculation is a signifier that that he's had a good time that he's orgasmed you know going back to like um you know this idea that that guys can only just experience pleasure through ejaculation right that's a pretty strong narrative for, for people just in general so if he's not ejaculated then oh he hasn't enjoyed himself and so the story for women can often be oh i didn't make him come like what's wrong with me and if a guy, for example, if he's not experimenting or consciously choosing to take ejaculation off the table when he just can't ejaculate, oftentimes a story will pop up for him about, like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I come? You know, this is supposed to be you know, the linear progression. This is the end of, of sex. This is how I'm supposed to perform. Um, so if he can't ejaculate, then then the story pops up for him. It's like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. Something's wrong with me. So we have, that's, a, that's usually what pops up first for, for these two people is got a woman blaming herself and a guy blaming himself. And whether those stories go away or not, there's also a secondary story that starts to pop up, which is for the woman is, no, I'm fine. What the fuck's wrong with him? Why can't he get it up? Why can't he come? Like, what's his problem? What's wrong with him? He's not normal. Um, because either that's not what's portrayed in Hollywood or that's not what's what portrayed in porn. Like, a guy should be able to, to get an erection and a guy should be able to come and a guy should be penetrative all these shoulds about what it means to be masculine and sexual. And then the secondary story that pops up for him is, well, nothing's wrong with me. It's her fucking fault that I'm not coming. She hasn't, she's not hot enough. She's not doing this thing that I like. She's not acting like all the porn stars that I watch. She's not doing these things that all the Hollywood women are supposed to be doing. She's not thin enough, whatever the fuck it is. And so these stories pop up of, of people blaming themselves and then blaming each other. And, no one's talking about it. No one's having this conversation. So at least in my experience, no couples are going, well, let's experiment with taking ejaculation off the table. Let's see how that affects us. Um, it's always really done unconsciously. So, and something that my teachers always said, and, and, and I'll echo here, is that like ejaculation retention or like taking ejaculation off the table is a couple's practice. So it's not just the guy's responsibility to not ejaculate. It's the partnership's responsibility to experiment with, with not having ejaculation be part of that sexual experience by consciously choosing not to do it. Um, and so that includes, like I referred to before, women being aware of and being mindful of, they have a lot of power in making men come. Like, it, whether it's conscious or unconscious, the like people in female bodies, particularly for having sex with guys, can like turn it on and can, can you know, the esoteric way of talking about it would be like to draw a seed from a guy. Um, and whether you know, maybe that'll land for, for some women, they'll recognise that, yeah, they can make a guy you know, come quickly if, if the sex is bad. That's often the way that it's framed and, and where that kind of, um, where that power, I suppose, becomes a bit subversive rather than kind of like in its fullness. So, so like taking ejaculation off the table becomes this, this couple experience for them to, to explore together. And when ejaculation is take, taken off the table, it's like, well, cool. What else can we explore? You know, what else is there? To, when, you know, when do we close down sex? When is the sexual container kind of, you know, um, when, it, when is it finished? What's the signifier now? And so it starts to allow you to open the door up to have these beautiful, pleasurable experiences of like, okay, well, if I'm not going to focus on ejaculation, then I need to slow my penetration down because, you know, all this friction-based penetration is what leads to ejaculation. So it's like, okay... If I'm not penetrating as much, what else can we do then? What else can we experience pleasure? So instead of focusing on like his gratification, which is often how a lot of like 
just day-to-day casual sex is framed, um, focusing on you know, ejaculation as gratification, if we just kind of remove that, it's, well, let's focus on shared pleasure. Let's focus on, on everything else that the sexual experience can kind of give to us and, and we can kind of um, enjoy that journey, I suppose, rather than focusing like... Because like when, when we start to have sex like that, um, or I suppose when we're, when we're having sex, which is ejaculation-focused or, or goal-oriented in a sense, oftentimes we can feel like after that sex is finished, we can go, fuck, I could have just done that by myself. I could have done that way more efficiently, way more effectively if I just rub one out in the bathroom or if I just jumped on the computer and, and just went through the motions. So oftentimes we're feeling pretty dissatisfied, um, men and women, because uh, guys feel like they're putting in the work to, because they feel like they're responsible for their partner's pleasure um, and, and women feel like, well, fuck, that was not great or that was, you know, I tolerated that or whatever it might be. Um, so we have both parties kind of thinking, well, that was average and I probably could have done a better job myself. So, um, so yeah, so ejaculation choice is what I'll call it rather than ejaculation control um, is, uh, is a really beautiful way of starting to explore as a couple what else the sexual experience can can lead to and what other pleasures there are. So, yeah, it's like if ejaculation's out of the question, you then bring in communication, which then leads to the vulnerability, which then leads to the experience being uh, sensitive and fulfilled. Um, What you've recently spoken about, how the first point of pleasure for men and women is quite different. So for a woman, it's touch around her body and not the genitals first and for a man it's the genitals first can you explore that deeper for women to know how to touch their men yeah yeah totally so this kind of observation comes from like how people report that they self-pleasure from the way that they masturbate so we can ask a bunch of guys and i kind of referred to this a bit earlier how do they how do they masturbate how do they touch themselves what do they like to do and oftentimes they'll go straight for their cock, straight for their genitals, straight for, straight for um, stimulation of the genitals. Um, and if we then do the same thing for women and ask women how they, how they touch themselves, how they masturbate, if, they're, if they are masturbating, then um, the, the story or the dynamics is quite different. Instead of going straight for the genitals, it often builds towards the genitals. So um, it, it'll be like, I've, I've had women tell me, you know, starting off with their st- touching their chest, touching their breast, um, maybe doing a little bit of massage, and going into a bath, but doing something to build up towards genital stimulation. And so when we've got this kind of mismatch of guys going straight for their cock and women taking a while for them to touch their genitals, we we see this playing out in a in a partnered relationship where again heterosexual relationship where where guys touch. Their, their woman, their partner, the way that the guy likes to be touched and women touch their men, their partner, the way that, that she likes to be touched. So we've got guys going straight for penetration or straight for the genitals, straight for the clitoris or, or whatever it might be, straight for the vulva and women going, let me touch your back and let me rub your shoulders and you know, give you a little sensual massage and, and all, you know, all that lovely stuff as well. Uh, but because that's not what necessarily each person likes, what each individual likes, we get women going, whoa, slow the fuck down. Why are you going straight for you know, my yoni? And guys going, what are you doing? My cock's right here. And 
again, because there's no communication, we get people being dissatisfied and, and going, you don't know how to touch me. You don't, you don't know what it is that I want. So a good rule of thumb is don't touch your partner the way that you like to be touched. Touch them the way that they like to be touched. And this goes like um, a little tangent here is like the golden rule, right? Which is like treat others the way that you want to be treated. It's like that's not right because not, not everyone wants to be treated like you. Mm. So treat others the way that they want to be treated, right? So the same thing goes for touch and pleasure. Don't pleasure someone the way that you like to be pleasured. Pleasure them the way that they like to be pleasured. So a good rule of, good rule of thumb then is like for for men touching women is to not go straight for the genitals but to build towards them so start at the peripherals start at the extremities and work your way down towards the genitals and to speak finally into your question the guru of thumb for women when they're touching men is to start at the genitals start at his cock and work your way out from there so i said before men can experience pleasure throughout their whole body anyone can experience pleasure throughout their whole body um yeah, for the most part, unless there's maybe a, a nerve issue or some, some disabilities. But guys, I often tell them, instead of them just thinking that they can experience pleasure in their cock, is to think of their whole body as one big cock and that they're just one big penis that can experience pleasure from the tips of their toes to the top of their head. Um, and, so, you know, and, and so that advice also goes to, to women that are sleeping with guys is started as genitals, but then... Once you've got that fire, you know, we can use like the, again, the energetic or esoteric language of thinking of, of men's sexuality or men's libido or men's pleasure as a fire and women's sexual energy or sexual pleasure as uh, water, as a pot of water. This comes from like the Taoist understanding of, of male and female sexuality. It's like a, like a fire is quick to ignite. It's also quick to extinguish. So, um, we can think of ejaculation being the extinguishing of that fire, but also guys can, um, if they're tapped into their sexuality and, and aware of their arousal, can oftentimes build arousal quite quickly as well, um, which is, I suppose, evidenced by the way that they masturbate. They go straight for their genitals and then they and they got an erection and they can start moving pretty quickly through it. Um, and the water uh, for women's sexuality is like taking a while to boil, taking a while for it to bring to the boil. Um, and so we can think of like you know, the analogy of using fire and water together, of, of using his fire to boil her water and, and kind of all the esoteric language around that. Mm. But, but the, the kind of fundamental principle there is like get his fire ignited by, by going straight to the genitals and then encouraging him to feel pleasure throughout the rest of his body. Because once he feels turned on, oftentimes he'll feel pleasure in other areas of his body that he doesn't usually feel if he's not turned on. So like an example of this, um, which comes directly from my relationship with Edwina, is if I'm working and I'm on, I'm on my computer and I'm like in the thick of it, I'm reading a journal article, I'm writing a post or whatever it might be, and Edwina like comes and you know, kisses my neck or nibbles my ear or something, I'll be like, oh, get off me, I'm, I'm in the middle of work. But if I've been turned on, if I've been aroused and that fire has kind of been ignited and she does the same thing, I'm you know, completely different, 100% on board with it um, and find it really, really arousing. But a lot of guys don't recognize that. They go, oh, I don't like it when you fucking touch my ears. And so when they go into their sexual experiences, because they're not doing it by themselves, they're only focusing on the genitals, they don't recognize that they can experience a lot more pleasure throughout the rest of their body. Um, and so when they do it with a partner, they kind of just focus on their genitals and they're like, no, I don't need you to touch me up here. I just need you to focus on my, on my cock. So like encouragement for, for, for people that are sleeping with men or women that are sleeping with men is to is to encourage him 
when you're being sexual together to explore the rest of his body um, to to not just focus on his genitals and that is pretty confronting for a lot of guys because when you start doing that guys will sometimes lose their erection because they're not focusing on their genitals because they're all their attention and awareness and focus isn't on their cock they might go they might lose their erection fully or they might lose it half and that's a pretty confronting thing thing for guys in the bedroom for for them to not be like a fucking baseball bat um when they're when they're aroused so it's a big learning experience and it's also a big learning experience for for women as well if you know if their whole narrative and story is no guys need to be erect to be turned on so here's another myth going all the way back to you know myths is like guys can still be aroused and still be turned on if they don't have an erection and vice versa, guys can have an erection and not be turned on at all. So there's learning in that for, for people that have penises and people that, that sleep with people that have penises. It's like, cool, I'm going to explore this pleasure with him um, or with them. And but maybe he doesn't get an erection. Well, it's totally fine. It doesn't mean he's not experiencing pleasure and not enjoying himself. Um, and it still doesn't mean that you can't be penetrative. There's still ways you can be penetrative with a soft cock and with, with a... Um, um, with a flaccid penis, and, and there's still ways you can be sexual that don't involve penetration, obviously, with um, without an without an erection as well. So, um, so that like that rule of thumb of like starting at the genitals and working itself away can be confronting for a lot of people um, because mm-hmm. it, it goes against that pretty strongly ingrained narrative of of what men are supposed to be like in the bedroom. Mm, I just want to weave this in with some some recent wisdom that was brought up in one of our. Uh, conversations of consent and reopening or reimagining and understanding the process of giving receiving isn't as simple as I'm touching you for your pleasure. So I was wondering if you could talk into a little bit about the wheel of consent just briefly. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, So the wheel of consent by Betty Martin, who is an amazing, amazing woman, an amazing teacher. Um, Very, very basically to, to use an analogy to kind of describe this is, is say I'm, say I'm, I've got massage training. So say I'm, I'm giving someone a massage. They're coming to me and they're paying to get a massage. They're paying to get a, a Swedish massage or, or whatever it is. I'm the person that's, as the massage therapist, doing the action. I'm the person that's doing the touching. Um, and the person who's my client and they've paid me is the person that's receiving the action, right? Or having the action done to them is the way that we would frame that. So you've got a doer and a person who's being done to in that context as well I'm also the person that's giving the sensation or if it's like an erotic massage I'm the person that's giving the pleasure and the person who's on the table is the person that's receiving the pleasure right, so that's so we've got two two um, frameworks there we've got a person who's doing and a person who's done to and a person who's giving and a person who's receiving and oftentimes for a lot of the a lot of people who maybe aren't aware of like how it's broken down we often think that the person who's doing is the person who's giving and the person who's having it done to them is the person who's receiving. So that's quite two dimensional, but we can start to play around with those dynamics. Um, cause we've got the two, the two, um, dimensions there. We can start to say, well, okay, what about if in a more, um, relational erotic context with my partner, for example, so uh, directly from my relationship with, with Edwina is I actually really enjoy giving a massage, right? I, I really enjoy using warm oil and touching Edwina's body. Like that's something that really arouses me. Um, and I know Edwina finds it pleasurable as well, but possibly I find it more pleasurable than she does. So when we play and when we're sexual together and we 
uh, and we do that, we do that specific activity, I'm the person then that's still doing the touching, I'm the person that's still doing the action. Edwina's still the person that's having the action done to her. But in that context, I'm the person that's getting more from that experience. So really, I'm the person that's receiving the sensation. I'm the person, as the doer, who's, who's getting pleasure from that. Um, yes, Edwina might be getting some pleasure, but I'm the one that's getting most of it. And so therefore, she's the person that's giving me the pleasure. Even though she's not doing anything, she's just kind of lying there. Um, I'm the one that's, that's receiving and she's the one that's giving. So, um, which is the reverse of what the massage is um, or the, the therapeutic massage is. So, uh, and so the wheel of consent is then, we, we have these, um, this two-dimensional model turned into like this four-dimensional model, which is you know, four quadrants of, of um, the, the common way of thinking about it is we have a, a, a server who's the person doing and also giving at the same time. And we have a, an acceptor. So a person who is uh, having an action done to them and also receiving at the same time, like the therapeutic massage where a client is paying me to, to massage them. But then in the other context where um, Edwina and I are in the bedroom is of a person who's uh, taking pleasure, which would be me, and the person who's allowing pleasure, which would be Edwina. So I'm still the person that's doing, um, but I'm doing it so that I take pleasure from Edwina. And Edwina, within the context of consent, obviously, is allowing me to do that to her um, because she knows that I'm the one that's getting pleasure from it. Um, So that's very basically the wheel of consent. And and so everything that falls within the the wheel, I suppose, is consensual or has been done with agreement. So so we can very easily can, can think of where um, where we fall outside of that circle to use the massage again massage analogy is and maybe this will land for for some people that are listening is if you've ever gone to get a massage um, this usually lands for women more than more than guys if you've ever gone to get a massage and the massage therapist like kind of all of a sudden you kind of feel it slipping from being like massage to be like, oh, this is a little bit weird. This is a little bit creepy. Like this guy's like maybe enjoying himself a bit too much. Give me this massage. Um, that's it slipping outside of the, the wheel of consent because you haven't agreed that he's allowed to get pleasure from this. Um, there was never, it was never spoken. So that usually lands for women more than it does for men. I don't have an example for men just yet. Um, but we can start to think of like, okay, what are some ways that we can make sure that all the actions we're taking within that, and let's frame it within you know, the sexual pleasurable context, um, are, are consensual and, and fall within agreements. Like, well, we need to start communicating, which is what we've been talking about this whole time. So one of the ways that Betty, um, again, in her wisdom has kind of shared with regards to how we can start to frame these communications or this conversation is by asking two very, very simple questions. So one question is, how would you like to touch me for your greatest pleasure? And, um, and then asking, um, how would you like me to touch you for your greatest pleasure? So very simple, but they start to play around with those dynamics of giving and receiving and having a person doing and having a person have an action done to them. Um, and so when we start expanding this, like she calls that the three-minute game. And so when you start expanding that, you can, you, know, you can really start to, to explore what it is that you want. So if someone's asking you what you want them to do to you, fuck you, you know, 
I never had anyone ask me that until like I started doing this work because you know, it was just wasn't something that was asked. And so you've really got to go inside and be like, well, what actually do I want? What actually do I desire? What actually turns me on? If you don't know that, you're going to have a hard time answering that question. Um, and then also vice versa. If someone's asking you to do something to them and you're like, well, I, do I actually want to do that? Do I feel comfortable doing that? Or am I like, am I like well, that's crossing my own boundaries. Um, and if you don't know that, then you're going to have a hard time uh, like doing that action or answering that question. So it starts to really open up um, dialogue, I suppose, about what, what our boundaries are and what we consent to and what we allow uh, and where our limitations are. But also on the flip side of that, it starts to really invite us into well, what do I actually want? What do I actually desire? Where, where does my pleasure want to take me? Um, and that looks different every single time. So, so although we get to form maybe a, an understanding or a relationship with our partner's body and what it is that turns them on, we still should be checking in with them each time we're sexual because you know, no two sexual experiences are the same, no two orgasms are the same, no two ejaculations are the same for guys. So, um, so every time we're, we're being sexual, we should be you know, starting to check in with our partner and starting to ask them questions. And it doesn't have to be like a formalized written statement of like, hey, what, what do you want from this sexual encounter? Can you sign off on this? But starting to like just have a bit of a more of a communication check-in process with them and being like, hey, is this, are you enjoying this? Do you want me to go harder, softer, faster? Just starting to communicate a bit more and, and starting to understand like what it is that they really want in that moment. Um, for women who have difficulty in simply communicating with their uh, partner, being a man, it being already quite a fragile and delicate territory just to communicate let alone be in the bedroom and then explore communication in the sexual context what tools can we give people who have male partners to allow them to feel safe to really open up and begin the dialogue of what they want and what we want them to give us and yeah what if 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 men could talk and tell us what 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 would they say mm. So the, the couple of pieces of advice I suppose I have for, for women who have male partners is, or for just people that have male partners, is um, a lot of men who haven't done any work on their sexuality have a performance mindset. So um, what that kind of means is that they're, they're concerned about, about getting an erection, you know, going back to all these myths and, and the standard narrative of, of male sexual expression is, a lot of guys are concerned about how hard their dick is, are concerned about how long they last, are concerned about you know, whether they're ejaculating or not. So they focus on the performative aspects of the sexual experience, not necessarily on the pleasure. That might be secondary to a lot of guys. So one of the ways that um, you know, their partners can, can help these guys kind of feel more comfortable and, and shift that performance mindset to a more of a pleasure mindset, which is kind of ultimately what we want, is take the pressure off of the performance. So um, so whether you verbalize this um, directly or if you, or if you um, frame it differently, it's like letting him know that it's okay if his dick isn't hard. Letting him know that it's okay if he comes quickly. Letting him know that it's okay if he, if he can't penetrate you, for example. And maybe in the long run, that's actually what you're looking for is for penetration and ejaculation. But in the short term, if you're able to take that pressure off... Um, because a lot of guys load that pressure onto them 
selves, right? Going back to all the myths and the narrative around masculinity and sexuality. So a lot of guys are already in their head about performing and are putting a lot of pressure on themselves. In fact, that's where a lot of dysfunction comes from, is from the pressure that they're, they're putting on themselves. So if you're able to alleviate a little bit of that pressure and, and, and tell him pretty much to not worry about how he's performing, then you create a bit more of, of, a, of a safer container for him to be like, well, okay, I don't need to get an erection. Well, I don't need to come. Um, or I don't need to worry about coming too soon or whatever it is. Um, so that's one piece of advice is like take the pressure off performing. Um, then there's other ways of like, yeah, I suppose, um, having conversations before you get into the bedroom, before you get into the sexual sphere. Um, cause I often frame like arousal or heightened states of arousal as altered states of consciousness. And we often do and say things when we're in our heightened state of arousal or this heightened sexual state that we maybe aren't open to doing or aren't talking about or aren't willing to participate in when we're not aroused. So, um, so having conversations like when you're going on a walk or having conversations when you're going for a drive or when you're sitting at a dinner table having a meal um, and, and framing them in terms of pleasure rather than in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, call me crazy, but I think sex is supposed to be pleasurable and, and so I take this approach of pleasure positivity to, to, um, to sexuality and sexuality work. So if you're saying something along the lines of like, um, just off the top of my head like hey I'm enjoying I'm enjoying our sex life and, and you know or maybe you're not and, and you know, it's okay to tell a person that, that you're not but um, but just being mindful of how you how you reject and how you tell a person because um, as we kind of established a lot of guys identity and masculinity is tied up in the way that they are sexual um, so you say you know something along the lines of like um, you know I think it'd be cool or interesting to to explore a little bit more you know pleasure in the bedroom and mm. and what are some ways that we can experience more pleasure like a, a healthy sex life in my opinion has a variety and you know, for some people that variety looks like a variety of different people but for others um especially if you're in a monogamous relationship that variety looks like a variety of different experiences with that one person so you'd be like hey you know i'm i'm open to kind of exploring a bit more um variety and and i think you know i'm enjoying what we're what we have what we have but i think there's more to experience and you know i'd love to explore more pleasure with you and um and so keeping it pleasure framed pleasure oriented is really important um which is obviously easier said than done we can slip into story and and conditioning um particularly around sexuality so um, so some tools or some like conversation starters, which I found really useful is there's a game, um, which you can just Google, which is called the yes, no, maybe so game, which is pretty much just a long list of sexual activities and sexual experiences. And you just go through that list. And if you're open to it and you, and you feel like that's something you want to explore, you just say yes to it. If it's not something you're open to and you, you kind of don't want to, don't want to explore it, just say no. If you're on the fence about it and you're like, Mm, that sounds exciting. I've never really thought about that. Then it's a maybe. And so sit down with your partner, turn it into foreplay, turn it into like a, a little, you know, um, a little erotic experience where you're like, Hey, have you ever tried this? Would you want to do it? Um, mm. And then it's a yes and a no, and just go through the list and then see where your yeses line up, see where your nos line up and see where there's some, um, some discordance there as well. And be like, well, I didn't realize that that's not something you like, you know, something I really like. All right, so how do we compromise on that? Um, so that's just a really useful little 
tool to, to start opening up conversation about, about sexual experiences. Cause I kind of think of it as like, um, uh, the analogy I use is like a menu, like an erotic menu. Um, and so oftentimes when couples go and, and choose something from their erotic menu to be sexual t- with one another, there's oftentimes only one thing on that menu, which mm. is intercourse, right? Penetrative sex. And, you know, for, for, for men and for women and for people just in general, sometimes that's not what we want. And a lot of times that's probably not what we want. But if it's the only thing on the menu, we're like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm hungry. Mm. And so I'll, I'll take it, you know, if that's, mm. that's all that's on offer. But if we start to do, like this list and then start to explore and, and talk about other experiences sexually and we start to add things to our menu we start to put things on there that aren't penetration that maybe involve digital sex or oral sex or, or central massage or, or heaps of other things um, and we start to broaden our understanding of, of sex inverted commas um, and we start to uh, open up the opportunity to, to experience pleasure in, in a bunch of in a variety of different ways um, so then when we open up the menu again and we're feeling sexual it's like okay um, I'm feeling like this, but your partner might be like, well, I'm, I'm, I kind of want this. And so you can start to have a conversation about, oh, cool, can we do both of those things? And we start to talk about the wheel of consent again. And we'd be like, is that something that I'm willing to do um, for my partner? Then yeah, I can do that. You know, I might not be getting pleasure from it, or I might not be getting as much pleasure as my partner from it, but I'm willing to do that. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing to do that because I know my partner really enjoys it. And then vice versa, you start to have a bit of a, a back and forth between who's getting pleasure, who's this pleasure for, who's doing what to whom. Um, but if it's just penetration, then you're really, really limited in, in who that's for and, and, and the variety that you can have with it. Thank you. That's beautiful. I would like to talk a little bit about body image and what that means for men and women, um, both their genitals and the physical appearance of their body. And we had a conversation around the dinner table recently about men being shamed for uh, having pleasure or sexual experiences with bigger women and also how so much of our, like a lot of our pleasure senses comes through our hands and how touch is such an important exploration in the bedroom and what we feel is like a tangible experience and I, yeah, if you could go into that a little bit and what you've learned from men and being a woman, what men, just the, just this, the, the myths around body image, I guess, in the bedroom and how that affects the sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, I suppose like we can, we can refer to like ideal quote unquote ideal beauty standards, right. Or what the mainstream fashion industry kind of portrays as the, um, the the ideal and so we can kind of think stereotypically here of like um you know effectively what the body positivity movement is trying to kind of like um combat and fight against is this standard narrative of like women are supposed to be kind of quite thin or or um are supposed to have a certain body image uh, and and also men are supposed to be you know, a certain body image as well, so they're supposed to be quite muscly and and tall. Um, is a big one, particularly for guys, is is height. Um, and so, because we have this like really strong societally sanctioned ideas of what you know, the male body is supposed to look like and what the female body is, I say supposed to should you know very inverted commas there should look like. Um, 
we then see a lot of like anxiety and particularly shaming around what people find attractive. So, um, and what people, what people, um, like how they engage sexually with others. So for example, um, talking from a, 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 a man's perspective, a male's perspective, some of the guys I've worked with, um, this pops up, you know, um, usually around their teenage years is they, they get, um, conditioned to, or they get shamed by their mates if they, find a woman who doesn't fit that ideal body standard attractive or if they're if they are if they are sexual with a woman who doesn't feel that um who who their mates don't feel live up to that beauty standard or that ideal standard um and so like a very very um like typical example i suppose is like um and i think you kind of alluded to this bit is like if a guy sleeps with a woman or has sex with a woman who's maybe a little bit larger then uh, he's ridiculed by his mates, or or there there's like a lot of shaming and um, and teasing involved, um, and so we get this kind of like I suppose we get this scenario where not only is you know that that really narrow ideal again inverted commas way of of looking enforced by by women but it's also then enforced by men and the men that find just the regular woman um, attractive are then told by their mates that, that there's something wrong with them and so we create a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame around like what what our preferences are and what we find attractive and and that's when we see things become fetishized and that's when we see things when they're when they're when they're not, when it's not normal to want to, to find that attractive, we can, I can, you know, just refer to porn straight away and just be like, that's why we've got, you know, specific categories around specific body images and specific body types because it's not considered normal to find that attractive. And so it becomes taboo and fetishized. Um, and I like there's there's stuff around like men's bodies as well. So, um, so like, like a lot of men, in fact, you know, 90 plus percent of guys are dissatisfied or are unhappy with the size of their cock. And the vast majority of those guys who are unhappy with the size of their cock think that they're too small and want to be bigger. Um, so it's like every single guy that you talk to, pretty much like 90, not, like 90 plus percent of men think that they want to be bigger um, or think that they need to be bigger is, is, you know, is the... Um, is a story there and again perpetuated by by porn predominantly because that's where we see like stunt penises um but also by by um you know hollywood as well and and by kids movies and by all this kind of mainstream media is bigger is better is the kind of narrative around that so got a lot of guys then either feeling um, inadequate or feeling like they're insecure about the size of their penis but then that's also being being reinforced by their mates, right? And there's a lot of like cock shaming and like, oh, look at you know limp dick over here, or you know, you know a common common insult which is perpetuated by mainstream media as well is like, just tell a guy that his dick's small, and that's like a good way to insult him. Mm. Um, and so we have this this comfortability with shaming men around the size of their cock, um, not only by men but also by women as well. Um, so, so body image is, is you know, and, and body positivity is like this huge kind of cauldron of, of narratives and myths that we need to start kind of breaking down because um, otherwise we see, 
we see you know guys not pursuing the people that they actually find attractive but they they um they they you know pursue or they um they interact with or they're sexual with people who they're supposed to find attractive mm. who they're being told that they should find attractive um and yeah and then maybe they're maybe they're not really enjoying that, that sexual experience but they're just kind of going through the motions because that's what they they should be doing this is what they should be finding attractive um yeah and then we get you know we get um i suppose i can't speak from a woman's perspective but we get women who maybe don't fit that ideal um again inverted commas body type feeling like you know well guys aren't going to find me attractive and then so we get a lot of self-worth stuff to start like to pop up um and then you know guys who feel like they're 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 not living up to you know maybe they're not they're not tall enough you know or they're not muscly enough or or you know they're not skinny enough for example as well um feeling like, well, fuck, no one's going to find me attractive. I don't fit this, again, inverted commas, ideal body type for a guy. Um, or my cock's not as big as all these porn stars' cocks is. So I'm not going to be able to, like, pleasure a woman, right? That's often how guys kind of feel. It's like, not that, again, because guys don't feel like they can experience a lot of pleasure. So they're like, oh, I'm not going to be able to, to attract. I'm not going to be attractive to a woman. I'm not going to be able to give her pleasure. I'm not going to be able to, to make her whatever it is, um, you know, my cock's not big enough to make her come. Size is is pretty much, you know, in a lot of men's eyes, related to how much pleasure their partner can get. Mm. Um, so we can do a lot of like debunking around that, um, and like one really simple way of thinking about this. And and if you ever like do a poll on like what size women prefer, like I've done this on my social media accounts, is usually bigger is definitely not better, um, and oftentimes that's because bigger is usually more painful and is harder to receive um, penetratively. So, um, and, and I've had a lot of women tell me that at least, and, and guys, whether they take that on board or not is, is kind of their prerogative, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of value in, uh, and a lot of importance in figuring out like, you know, particularly for women, like how, deep or how shallow their cervix is for example and that determines whether a bigger bigger cock is going to feel painful or not mm. um, you know, so it's not necessarily about tightness which is you know, needs to be debunked as well but it's about how it's about depth and um, and where the cervix sits and also then you know throughout a woman's cycle the cervix will will become shallower or, or, or push further back or go higher up so at different times in the cycle size will be determined will be will be determined by where she is so but, but none of that's being talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have this kind of like, especially for men, going, oh, I need to be bigger. And the bigger I am, the more pleasure she's going to get. Um, and probably porn is, is what perpetuates that the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of body image and body issue stuff kind of going on. Just speaking to that, I'm curious whether in your work, say women are coming with this narrative of trying to be small and having necessarily their vulvas also tight and tucked in and men are coming with this narrative of wanting to be bigger and, and musclier and we both have this enmeshment of being an outcast essentially inside the cultural norm and so we're all coming to the bedroom with this insecurity and self-shaming and I'm wondering if you think it's a appropriate place 
if the other partner has not voiced it, for you to bring up those insecurities, to to pass them away so that you can then be more vulnerable and intimate with the other? Or do you feel like bringing up insecurity, which I've heard in this work before, is actually a turn-off? Mm. So where is the right space for that, particularly if you're not in a partnership and you're single and you're meeting someone, where is the right place to explore both your vulnerability and to heighten the eroticism of the experience? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think it's black and white. Like I definitely believe that, that sexual experiences can be healing um, and that a lot of, like if it's done in a container and in a safe way, then, then a pleasure, I think pleasure is a healing tool. Like I think pleasure is a modality in, a, in and of itself. Like experiencing pleasure is, is a way of healing things. So, um, and that's a different conversation. But, um, but there's, like, there's nuance to those two things. Like it's not, it's not, I guess, black and white where you know, insecurities should never be brought up versus insecurities should always be brought up. There's, there's context. You know, that, that's important. Um, so possibly in a casual context, maybe not the best place to bring it up, right? If there's no um, underlying relationship or underlying safety um, mm. being created, but maybe in a more relational context where there's some longevity in the relationship and there's some more trust and some more safety, probably a more appropriate time to bring up these things. And again, framing it uh, with, you know, with regards to pleasure, pleasure positivity, right? Um, rather, than, rather than it being like, here's a bad thing, that you have an insecurity it's like look if we work through this insecurity we can both experience more pleasure rather than i kind of use this um example with condoms for example um oftentimes the way that we educate around condoms is is you need to use a condom because um if you don't use a condom you'll get an sti or you'll get pregnant and you'll ruin your life and so it's marred in insecurities and marred in fear and insecurities is really fear right of fear of being rejected or fear of being told we're not normal, or fear of, of not, uh, not pleasing our partner. Right? That's what an insecurity kind of is. Um, it's fear-based. Same with the condom um, example. But if we start to do a little bit of uh, a pleasure-positive education around this, like to use the condom again, you know, we should be using condoms, yes, because they, they mitigate against STIs and pregnancies, which is a good thing, and we need to be aware of that. But also because when we reduce that anxiety of getting an STI or uh, an unplanned pregnancy, that reduction of anxiety and that alleviation of stress actually allows us to feel more pleasure. We can actually enjoy ourselves more. Um, and so this, I guess, same framework can be used for bringing up and working through insecurities. It's like the more that we, the more that we um, alleviate those insecurities, the more that we take their power you know, over us away, the more pleasure we're going to be able to experience, the more uh, the word gets tossed around a lot, but the more embodied we're going to be in our sexual experience. And by virtue of that, the more pleasure we're going to be able to, to, to sense. Um, so I think yeah, if you're going to have a conversation around like body image, for example, and, and size, then, um, then keeping it pleasure oriented and pleasure framed is important. Um, and then maybe yeah, in a more relationship context rather than in a casual sense. So, mm. um, so context and nuance is, is important. I don't think it's a black or white, white thing. Yeah, I just want to tie in there as well how you have mentioned before and you work a lot in your um, realm with retention, th- retention methods, which is not ejaculating. And one of the biggest revelations that I had in, in these conversations with that was that orgasm and ejaculation are actually separate. 
and that men are actually able to have multiple orgasms. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit into that, and I loved how you talked about it as this building up of tension. And you mentioned that even um, ejaculation is almost like a mini-anxiety attack sometimes. Mm. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I wondered if you could speak into calming and opening and relaxing as a, as a form of ejaculation rather than that building and building and building of tension. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So the mini-anxiety attack example is like let's let's have a look at the physical characteristics of a guy when he's coming Uh, what what does he usually do so if you've ever seen a guy come you'll kind of pick up on a few things he'll usually squeeze and tighten and push and contract uh maybe his breath will go up into his chest up into his thorax some guys even hold their breath when they're ejaculating um their temperature will go up their heart rate will go up because of the tension and tightness there and um and Oftentimes he'll, he'll grimace or there'll be like some type of um, expression on his face. So if we took those characteristics out of the sexual context and we just applied them to a dude walking down the street and all of a sudden you saw a guy, he was just you know, kind of casually walking and all of a sudden he starts contracting and squeezing and his heart rate goes up, his temperature goes up, he starts breathing into his chest, he holds his breath, he grimaces. <laughs> we think this guy's having, a, having an episode and having a panic attack on the street. Mm. Um, and so like... In a way, an ejaculation is kind of like that because the ejaculation is connected to what's well, a reflex that's part of our, um, our sympathetic nervous system. So ejaculation isn't controlled by the mind, it's controlled by our nervous system. And particularly the branch of the autonomic nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, which if you're familiar with neurology, just really means that it's a survival response. It's part of our stress response or our fight or flight response, um, which for brevity's sake, um, I won't go too much into, but evolutionarily makes sense like it was important for us as a human animal to pass on our genes to reproduce so that we could survive so one of the ways that you know we could ensure that was by making ejaculation a survival response to make sure that we passed on our genes to make sure that we we procreated and reproduced and and we we know this we know that ejaculation is part of the sympathetic nervous system it's been studied and, and we know exactly how it works as a mechanism but what that kind of means then is for ejaculation to kind of come about, um, we, need to, we need to build to it. We need to build arousal. And arousal not in, a, not in the way that we kind of use it colloquially, which is like feeling turned on, but arousal physiologically, which is a building up of tension and a building up of tightness. Um, we call it myotonia, muscle tension, um, as well as like quickening the breath elevating the heart rate so cardiovascular rhythm goes up um and and we build to this point of ejaculation so um so it's this building of tension which is pretty much what our what our survival response does it makes us tense excuse me it makes us alert and it makes us kind of like ready to you know it, it prepares the body to either run or to fight or to freeze or to to do whatever it is you know um the last part of the the fight flight freeze response is to fuck is to fornicate um particularly for for men so a lot of guys are having caveman sex a lot of guys are having survival sex sex to survive by just going through that tension build up towards ejaculation um but also because a lot of us as people in general in western society are just going around in a heightened state of arousal again not the erotic sense but in the physiological sense 
a lot of us carry tension with us every day. Mm-hmm. A lot of us aren't breathing deeply into our diaphragm every day. We're breathing into our chest. A lot of us um, are in a constant state of awareness and, and, and alertness because of our phones and uh, because of deadlines and because we never really get a chance to switch off. We're already in a, in a, in a state of arousal. So um, an analogy that one of my teachers, a guy called Nick Spadaccini shared with me, which I think is really beautiful, is <clears throat> our body, like a sponge, like a sponge absorbs water, our body is really good at absorbing tension. So um, <clears throat> like if you had a hard day at work, at the end of the day, you're going to be tense and you're going to be tight and you need to do something to release it. So same way a sponge absorbs water. Um, if the sponge is waterlogged, just like if our body is tension locked, if we try and pour any more water onto the sponge, it's going to, it's not going to absorb. It's going to leak out. Same thing with our body. If we're applying like sexual tension on top of the tension that we already have, we don't have a lot to absorb. So we can't really, we can't really enjoy it. It just, Mm. it leaks out. And for men that leaking out looks like an ejaculation. Mm. Um, So not only is it a, is it a energetic leak? It's a physical leak as well. They, they reach their capacity and they, they, they leak. Um, so what's important is to like wring the sponge out of water we need to wring our body out of tension so we need to we need to those characteristics of arousal we need to bring them all the way back down to a baseline we need to bring our body back down into a state of relaxation or into a state of parasympathetic response rather than sympathetic response so we need to actually relax our body release the tension from the muscles because then we can you know pour water onto that sponge we can pour sexual tension into our body and we can build and build and build and build and build and build and build way more than we could if we were already at that heightened state and only had like a tiny little bit to go before we before we reached that capacity and then so that's one one way we can start to change our sexual experience is to go into it relaxed mm-hmm. rather than go into it tense and stressed mm-hmm. um, which again requires a bunch of preparation work it's like okay I'm going to do some breathing, I'm going to do some stretching, I'm going to you know, relax, I'm not just going to go straight in for penetration. Um, but then we can start to go, okay, well, not only that, but it's the ejaculation which triggers our sympathetic response. And we know that ejaculation is a reflex, but orgasm is this, you know, there's, there's 20 plus different definitions of what an orgasm is. So if you ask a, a neurologist, he'll say it's, a, or they'll say it's a, it's a specific firing off of different neurons or um, you know, neurochemicals being released in the brain or whatever it might be. If you ask a, uh, a physiologist, they'll say it's the muscle contractions. If you ask a psychologist, they'll say it's the subjective experience of a heightened pleasure. So orgasm is just kind of this like this um, enigma of, of pleasure and heightened states of physical and psychological arousal, um, which is way harder to define than okay, we know ejaculation of reflex that's broken down into the sympathetic stages. So if we, you know, if we start to recognize that they're actually two separate things, ejaculation is this reflex, orgasm is this experience, and then we can have, we can have one without the other. So for example, a wet dream for a lot of guys is a, an ejaculation without an orgasm. It's a non-orgasmic ejaculation, for example. Mm. You can also have the opposite. You can have a non-ejaculatory orgasm. Um, one of the ways we we well, possibly the foundation for the way that we can do that is to not go down that route of sympathetic response, not go down that route of survival response, because that's, what's going to lead to an ejaculation. So we go down the route of relaxation and that route of parasympathetic response. 
so that we're not having you know caveman style sex we're having um you know sex for pleasure sex for expansion sex for for sensation um and so you know we just kind of look at the things that that take us out of sympathetic response and transition us into parasympathetic responses like slowing the breath down relaxing the body um not focusing on the genitals focusing on other areas of the body so all these things that we do in a non-sexual context um like doing a yoga practice um doing a meditation doing a breathwork session what if we start to use those and apply those um during our self-pleasuring or during our sexual experiences with a partner can we slow right down and do some like gentle breathing exercises with our, with our partner can we slow right down and, and do like a massage session with our partner um, what are some ways that we can take us out of that like linear survival mechanism and into like our relaxation response and start to explore the rest of the body um, you know, even just like neurologically the sympathetic nervous system which is what facilitates ejaculation just goes like straight down the spinal cord like it doesn't branch out into it goes to our vital organs it doesn't you know, it's not concerned with everything else that we have in our body but the parasympathetic nervous system if we look at on a diagram the way that innervates the body as it goes out to our limbs it goes out to our extremities goes out into other non-vital areas of our body so just by virtue of of stepping into the parasympathetic response we actually feel more mm. we actually can actually feel more sensation because we're not in that that um spinal column kind of limited sympathetic nervous system um response so so that's like one of the ways that, that well that's kind of not just one of the ways but that's kind of the foundation for for the way that i teach men how to how to separate orgasm and ejaculation and how to just experience more pleasure in their bodies um is to is to just slow the fuck down it's just mm. relax is to explore your body not to just go through this survival caveman style progressive sex mm. which is just like such a metaphor for life <laughs> just yeah. slow down everything mm. needs to slow down mm. i feel really honored to be a student of yours i consider myself an accidental student <laughs> being in lockdown together and being triggered a lot with my own stuff and yeah i just i hope our relationship deepens and we can explore this further with what will come of sexuality and how we as a species will be able to approach it in a in a slower more vulnerable state not the caveman style because that's we don't need to doesn't have to be like that anymore Mm. Mm. yeah i wonder if you could just um as one little take home Microdiscipline. If there is any self-pleasuring tool or just one thing to focus on as a process to knowing yourself better, what our listeners could take home as mm. one small practice to put into their lives. Just one, hey. Oh, you can. I mean, you can do as many as you want. Um, well, the 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 general advice I give to people when they're and this is. For self-pleasuring, yes, but for just any type of sexual experience is, as we kind of alluded to, slow down. But one of the ways of slowing down is by checking with your breathing. Mm. So oftentimes I'll ask people, how do you breathe when you're masturbating? Or how do you breathe when you're having sex? And people will be like, I have no idea. So my encouragement and my invitation for people is to check in with how you're breathing and if you notice you're holding your breath or if you notice you're breathing quicker or if you notice your breath is in your chest, mindfully change it so that you're breathing slower and you're breathing deeper and you're breathing down into your belly, down into your diaphragm. 
just by virtue of doing that, your whole experience will change. Mm. So that's like the one piece of advice I just have for people in general is just check in with your breath when you're being sexual and allow it to slow. Thank you, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. (laughs) Know thyself.